Hi, and thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Today we find out about new research that shows proto feathers could have helped dinosaurs not only survive and adapt to cold weather, but thrive and dominate. We take a look at what lies ahead for the Assembly of First Nations as a political battle involving National Chief Roseanne Archibald overshadows other urgent matters at the AFN General Meeting in Vancouver this week. We dig into an absolutely wild day in British politics with a slew of resignations, including senior ministers, the sacking of another senior minister by Prime Minister Boris Johnson, and deafening calls for Johnson to quit, calls he continues to ignore how long can he last. But first, speaking of political drama, Patrick Brown is fighting his disqualification from the federal conservative leadership race. The Brampton mayor was booted late Tuesday over, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing, but he says he's done nothing wrong. What does this mean for the leadership race and for the Conservative Party? Well, first up, uh, the big story today, the fallout, the reaction, the shock waves created by the announcement late last night that Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown, one of the front runners in the Conservative Party of Canada leadership race, was being booted. The Brampton mayor was uh, ousted late Tuesday by a leadership organizing committee for what it called, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing. However, it did not provide any specifics. The party says it received numerous allegations against Brown, including some that appear to violate financing rules under the Canada Elections Act. Brown says his campaign followed the rules, and it was the party that didn't provide the full details of the allegation. Brown also claims it's proof the fix is in. Brown spoke with Jazz Joe Hall on Vancouver's CKNW Jazz Joe Hall show this afternoon. Well, I think we were making the Pierre Polyev campaign very nervous. We clearly had a path to victory. We signed up over 150,000 Canadians to join the party. Um, and they've used their influence um, to successfully disqualify one of their chief adversaries um, in this race. And um, it's not good for... Democracy is not good for the Conservative Party when you disqualify one of the leading candidates only days before um, the ballots are mailed out. There's Patrick Brown speaking to Jazz Joe Hall earlier today on CKNW. Well, this evening, reports of a lawyer's letter sent to the Conservative Party of Canada's Leadership Election Organizing Committee announcing Brown's intention to appeal the decision. Uh, the firm brought in is Henning Hutchison, Mary Hennin's for one of Canada's top criminal defence lawyers. The plot thickens. The development, of course, for now, leaves five candidates in the race, the winner of which will be announced on September the 10th. Well, joining me now is Laurie Turnbull, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks so much for having me. Well, you just knew this was going to cause a lot of shockwaves today. What have you made of all the back and forth? It feels like there was a lot of ink spilled as well on this one. But uh, do we know enough about these allegations, do you think? Well, like, it's hard to tell at this point. Like, you're sort of getting dribs and drabs as it goes on. Like, I think we're learning a little bit around the fact that they're saying that the committee agreed. You know, even though there, the vote was split on the committee, the committee agreed that the allegations were serious and that they, you know, they, they kind of had some sense that they needed to, to act on them. The question was more about what do we do? Right. Like, do we do something now? Do we do something later? Do we wait till the results are over before we make a decision? And so that would have to do with what's fair to the candidates and also, I think, keeping the integrity of the party intact as well. But at this point, like, I don't think we know enough to be able to make a decision, you know, on your own. Right. Like there's there's not enough transparency. And so you're not going to know really, you know, whose whose version of things to believe. It's it's really tough. 
It is. And, and, and I think in many ways, not, I, we always use the word unprecedented and it's not, but the timing of it, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the way it was released late at night, a, a pretty cryptic, uh, to be honest, or at least vague statement. I suppose they went as far as they thought they could go. Um, but this really does throw the whole race upside down a little bit, or does it? So I think it does. I mean, it would be obviously, I guess, the thing that would throw the race the most upside down is if this happened with Pierre Polyev instead of Patrick Brown, because Pierre Polyev is the front runner. And so that would cause a kind of like, oh, wow, you know, this whole thing is now open season and it, it would be crazy. But I think Patrick Brown's departure is pretty, like it causes a significant shift in what's going on because the big thing for Pierre Polyev is whether he's going to be able to win on the first ballot. He has so much front runner status that, you know, he's sort of trying to build up a lot of momentum and, and really thrive on that. But there's not much of a sense that he has down ballot support. His big thing is he wants to win on the first ballot. So if he, now that Patrick Brown is out of the race, or at least, you know, it looks like he is, he's not, it doesn't look like there's much shot. He's coming back, but who knows? Um, now what Pierre Polyev has to win on the first ballot might be smaller in terms of the absolute number of votes, because if a lot of the people who had signed up to vote for Patrick Brown end up not coming out at all, then 50% of, you know, 500 and some 500,000 some, you know, is, is less than what it could have been. And so that's good news for Pierre Polyev. On the other hand, now there's 150,000 people who've signed up through Patrick Brown who presumably would have put him first, who are looking for a place to happen. And so then it gives someone like Jean Charest, someone like Scott Aitchison, and the other candidates too, an opportunity to go and court these members, almost like they're new members, when they can't sign up any new ones now. So I think it actually does throw quite a bit of a, a door open for this thing. I was a bit surprised, to be frank, with Patrick Brown's approach today of sort of suggesting the fix was in because, you know, yeah. you could have come out today and said, hey, listen, I, I don't know what this is about. It seems untransparent. I don't think this is fair. I should have a chance to defend myself. And I think people would have said, oh, that makes sense. But then to come out and say, well, you know, this is proof that the fix was in. You think, well, what are you talking about? It, it just seemed like an odd approach to me. Well, that did. I mean, it seemed like he was really trying to put, like, I mean, obviously trying to put the whole thing on Pierre Polio's camp and saying this, these people are out to get me, right? Like, my candidacy was looking viable. They got scared by the number of people I signed up and they thought, okay, you know, we're going to try to get rid of this guy. But I mean, again, like that speaks to, it goes back to, to your earlier question about, do we know enough to be able to prove anything? And no, right? Like, it's it's just these these two narratives that actually if when you line them up might not actually be mutually exclusive, but one is saying, you know, Patrick Brown is a bad guy who does bad things. And so, you, you know, you shouldn't believe anything. And, and, you know, this sort of thing, we're like, that's, I think without the proof, without the transparency around what he's being accused of and how he responded to it, that's the narrative from one side. And then the other side from Patrick Brown is basically, Oh, well, these guys just wanted to, to eliminate me. But I mean, that doesn't put him in good stead to defend himself. Maybe he thinks he doesn't have to defend himself, but it's strange because he's almost acting like he's still a candidate when he's not. And I don't get that part. 
Yeah, yeah, me neither. Lots to still follow there, no doubt. Uh, I mean, he has, there have been allegations of stuff in the past with, with Brown. Some of it I know uh, he he was not, uh, you know, it, 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 he's still here, uh, but there have been allegations of the past about some of his behavior. Well, yeah, I mean, and that was the thing, I think that was the reason that a lot of people were wondering whether his candidacy was really viable to begin with. As there was this question about, you know, is this kind of stuff going to come back to dog him on the campaign trail? Is he going to be able to get around the accusations that he's faced in the past? This, the truth is those, those accusations and his whole, his whole story as a politician is far more known in Ontario than it is outside of Ontario. So, like, how is this stuff going to affect him? But I think right from the get-go, Jenny Byrne, Pierre Polyev have really tried to situate Patrick Brown back in that world where he was under these, this cloud of all of these accusations. And even to the point where Jenny Byrne has been, has accused Michelle Rempel Garner of being a fake feminist because she supported Patrick Brown and look at all the accusations against him. So even that, right, like from day one, this leadership race has been so toxic in so many ways, right? And the, the trust between the candidates, the sense of a common project is really not there. Yeah, I was I was thinking that uh, today too. That in, in a campaign where there was slightly more congeniality between between the different contestants, this might have played out a bit differently. But it seems that it's uh, already back to that toxicity to some extent. I know. Yeah, and I mean that's the, the thing that looks like it's ramping up now. And it's interesting because, like, we have like roughly two months left of this thing because the votes are all supposed to go in on September 10th. And well, we'll find out who the winner is on September 10th. So now we've got the mail-in ballot going, going on for the next while. We don't have any more debates, at least not official ones. We don't hear a lot from the candidates who are lesser known, right? Like people like Scott Aitchison, and Roman Baver, we're not hearing so much from them. There's really a kind of lull in the debate, or sorry, in the conversation in terms of policy, and where the candidates, like what they stand for. Now, I'm assuming there's a whole lot going on on social media and direct messaging and things like that. But otherwise, like the, it seems like from a, from a public standpoint, the thing has lost a whole lot of momentum. So now you pour over the top of that, this high level of toxicity, very personal swiping and attacks between the candidates. Either they're attracting one another or you don't hear from them. And so overall, I don't think it's a great look for the party. I mean, that said, like we've, I guess there's a couple of months to turn this thing around. And it'll be interesting to see whether the tone shifts now that there are, again, you know, 150,000 people who supported one person or, or signed up from that person, presumably to support him, and now won't be able to. It'll be interesting to see where they go, obviously. I'm speaking with Laurie Turnbull, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, we've been talking about uh, Patrick Brown being disqualified. It happened late last night. Lots of fallout today. Patrick Brown came out swinging today. There is now a lawyer's letter that's been sent. He intends to appeal. We'll talk about whether he can appeal or not. There's some confusion around that uh, as well. Speaking of things that are somewhat opaque tonight, uh, that's coming up. I believe right now um, Justin Trudeau is celebrating. He would love the opportunity uh, to um, face uh, to face Pierre Polyev in the next election. It would be, um, I believe, a conservative train wreck. Patrick Brown today, um, letting it all out with uh, Jazz Joe Hall on CKNW's Jazz Joe Hall Show. Uh, Laurie Turnbull is my guest this half hour, Associate Professor of Political Science and Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, what do you make? Do you think that's true? Do you think uh, Do you think he's right uh, as far as do you think it, the Liberals, uh, do you think Justin Trudeau is doing a celebrating Patrick Brown's demise tonight? <laughs> I mean, 
mean, like I, I can see some logic to Trudeau wanting to run against Pierre Polyev in some ways, right? Like, because it speaks to the different things that Patrick Brown and Pierre Polyev bring to the table. Patrick Brown is more of a moderate as is Jean Charest. Um, pot, you know, possibly, I think from Patrick Brown's perspective, someone like him, someone like Charest, they have more of an opportunity and more of an ability to bring the party together and grow the party. And so they would appeal more to the center right. And so they might even uh, appeal to some people who are often liberal voters and are just tired of Justin Trudeau. I think Patrick Brown and Jean Charest would want to appeal to people who consider themselves centrist and who find the liberal NDP coalition to be too left, too progressive, you know, whatever. And that's not a coalition. It's a confidence and supply agreement. But I think um, on the other hand, that might have the effect of kind of downplaying some of the appeal that Pierre Polyev really might have. And I even find when I watch some of the material that Pierre Polyev is putting out, like some of the videos that he's put out and things like that, it's kind of reminiscent of some of the videos that Justin Trudeau put out back in 2015. It is. And I don't know if that's, thank God you said that, because I don't know if that was just me or what. No, no, it's, it's a storytelling thing. It's a folksy thing. It is. Yeah. I get it. 100%. And so I think that Pierre Polyev is actually trying to do something uh, quietly revolutionary in that he's trying to really uh, rip down the traditional assumptions about what the political party is. He talks about how he's running for prime minister. He says nothing about the conservative party. He talks about, you know, he talks about Justin Trudeau. He talks about freedom, things, he's, you know, ideas and concepts that are very difficult to define. And so he's difficult to define too. He's hard to pin down. He's hard for the liberals to frame him. And so I think his, his plan is to just walk around with all the confidence in the world and not get sucked into the, the, you know, back and forth of the conservative thing at all. And so in which case I think that he, he might actually turn out to be more, uh, a formidable a candidate, you know, formidable an opponent to Justin Trudeau than Patrick Brown thinks. I would think so. I would think so. And it's interesting you've noticed that because I noticed that too. There's something about the sort of the storytelling and also it's just pure politics. Of course, Jenny Byrne, John Baird's on board with him as well. There's the idea that you define yourself before your opponent can define you better, right? So that's uh, clearly what he's up to. Do you think this damages the conservatives at all, that there's this sort of you know, one of the front runners gets tossed, uh, as you mentioned, just a little while before people will actually start filling in those ballots? Oh, I think so, right? Because this type of thing leads to a sort of, like, good grief, right? Like, it kind of looks like administratively, practically, the party will not look all that smooth in terms of its rollout of this thing, especially since it's only mail-in ballot, right? Like, you can't show up. It's that everyone is going to get a mail-in ballot. And I think, um, you know, some have rolled out already. And so ballots are going to have Patrick Brown's name on them. And so there's going to be this sense that, yeah, we kicked this guy out. So don't vote for him. Like, you know, don't bother putting next next to his name or a number next to his name. And so it's a little, you know, it comes across as being a bit amateurish, I think. But more broadly, um, to the extent that they haven't been totally transparent about the accusations or Patrick Brown's response, it runs the risk that some people start to say, I don't know what really happened here. You know, and what if Patrick Brown is right? You know, because he's saying some pretty, like, even this point, and and I'll be quiet here and let you you jump in, but even his point around, they threw it, they pushed Ed Fast out. 
they pushed Michelle Rempel to the point that she left my campaign. Like, if that if those kinds of messages start resonating with people, he really might have, like Pierre Polyev might have some things to answer for. The party might look like it's not controlling this and not providing a safe space for people to be able to support who they want. And so it could look bad, bad if it looks like, not only is it a coronation, but Pierre Polyev was particularly, um, you know, hostile toward anybody who didn't support him. I only have about 30 seconds left, Lori. Um, lawyer's letter tonight um, announcing his intention to appeal, Patrick Brown's. Can he appeal? My understanding is probably, but I, but I don't know. Can he appeal? That's my understanding, too. I didn't see anything completely definitive on it, but it's, it seems to me like he, he could, and it could happen very quickly, and I wouldn't blame him if he did. On the other hand, he's got other things to consider. If this isn't going to be a slam dunk for him, he might not want to do that, especially given the fact that he wants to still run for the mayor of Brampton. Lori Turnbull, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Take it easy. Well, welcome back. This is a really interesting story. Now, I have not seen the new uh, Jurassic Park, but I understand that one of the things about it, Jurassic World Dominion, is that there are scenes of dinosaurs frolicking in the snow, um, and the pyroraptor has a shock of fire red feathers. Feathers. Now, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, so for me, dinosaurs were always kind of scaly, um, reptilian-looking. They certainly didn't have feathers. Um, but it seems that as time has moved on, uh, paleontologists believe that dinosaurs certainly did have feathers. Not only did they have feathers, but scientists studying dinosaur fossils recently have discovered one feature that helped early dinosaurs become the dominant species by surviving cold weather, and that is indeed their feathers. At that time, this is according to an article I was reading, at the end of the Triassic era, a mysterious mass extinction event linked to a vast volcanic eruptions, or many around the world, sent the world into a cold, became a cold and dark place. So with their feathers, I mean, lots of marine species were, and land species were wiped out, but not the dinosaurs, because they had these feathers to help keep them warm. And they were then able to take advantage of wider territories and move around and went from being a smaller uh, species, a minority group, to being really much in charge. Don't take my word for this, though. Joining me now is Dennis Kent. He's an adjunct senior research scientist at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory at Columbia University, and he's one of the authors of that very study I was just talking about. Thanks so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I guess to start at the beginning, I know it goes back a long way, but what was it that you set out to determine? What was your hypothesis going in? The hypothesis uh, generated itself by the observations of uh, seemingly innocuous little pebbles that uh, whose origin was unclear. And this is uh, the lead author, Paul Olson, was in the field in the field area. And the the idea was, uh, well, there was the idea eventually emerged that these might be evidence of ice rafting. Well, how the question was, how do these uh, pebbles get into a very fine grain uh, sediment that deposited at the bottom of a lake? And the what dawned on them and uh, we followed through on was that this was evidence of uh, a freezing, freezing, at least seasonally freezing temperatures. And uh, what was significant is that one of the few ways of knowing do you really have uh, cold temperatures, especially in the in the presence of vegetation and um, 
and in this case, uh, dinosaurs from the footprints on essentially the shoreline of this uh, of this ancient lake. So this became a um, so the realization was that these dinosaurs uh, living at high latitudes, which we knew from which we already surmised uh, independently that they were at. Uh, in this particular case, they were above the uh, what we call the Arctic Circle, the 70 degrees uh, latitude, that uh, these animals did live there. But the supposition was that the they were uh, living during a time with very high uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere uh, that, uh, that's been known. And so the idea was that they were up there taking, basking in the warmth, so to speak. But the presence of ice rafting uh, told us that there was uh, ice or freezing temperatures, at least uh, in a seasonal, uh, uh, seasonally, if not uh, maybe for somewhat longer periods of time, but not too long because the animals were able to uh, to live there and needed to eat. So this this I mean, my understanding, of course, is the dinosaurs originated uh, the first dinos about 230 million years ago in warmer temperatures and were not a dominant group, uh, but this would suggest that they somehow adapted to colder weather and then use that uh, to achieve a certain level of dominance. Is that is that the case, or how did that work? Uh, that's that's uh, that's more or less the, the story. Although the 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 origination story for dinosaurs is actually at the other at the other pole in the southern hemisphere, and they originated at least the first some of the first fossils we find of them. Or in uh, what's uh, a place called, like for example, Ischigolasta in uh, in Argentina, and at the time, this is 230 million years or so ago, the uh, that area was uh, in uh, fairly high southern latitudes, not as high as in the China case, but uh, 45 degrees uh, south. So, the origination of dinosaurs was uh, not in warm tropical places or at least not in tropical places in terms of latitude but in terms but in at least temperate places so this the origination story that uh, is temperate and to find them in say high northern temperate to what we now realize is also seasonally freezing climate sort of raises questions about um what their adaptation had been perhaps right from the get-go, which yeah. is the idea of feathers. Yeah, tell me about that, because that's fascinating. So it, they, 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 they adapted to this cold weather through feathers, or at least that's a very simple way of putting it. But. That's, just, that's pretty much a simple, that's a simple idea that, there's, that uh, from other indications that the dinosaurs, maybe as a broad group, had been in, well, certainly some lineages had feathers, and then the idea was uh, that perhaps all of them had feathers, and it raised the question: uh, Okay, so what? I mean, what what uh, what do they do with them? How do they use them? And the uh, one conclusion is: is they use them uh, to weather uh, colder climes, and became a dominant group there, where few other organisms, like the large reptiles at the time, could. Uh, could easily adapt, and those are the ones that stayed in the that stayed, but they were in the tropical areas where it was uh, where it was warm, and uh, whereas the dinosaurs were in the uh, first in the southern hemisphere, then and then in the 
high, higher latitudes of the northern hemisphere and became the dominant uh, terrestrial uh, animal tetrapod though in those areas and that's and the and the feathers gave him uh uh insulation and what was the impact of that i mean you mentioned it but what was the impact of that in terms of their their survival both as a group and and their dominance as a group and and, and how did it manifest itself well the Perhaps the the most dramatic manifestation was what their survival through a, uh, a large extinction event at the end of the Triassic, at the end of this period. Uh, so originating about 230 million years, so at 202, 200 million years, there was a major extinction event, one of the big extinction events we recognize in the geologic record. And many, now most of the large reptiles the pterosaurs and pterodactyls and so forth, they got, uh, they got, became extinct, whereas the dinosaurs uh, did not. So the extinction mechanism somehow preferentially affected those in this. We think that those that weren't insulated and the uh, killing mechanism may have been the uh, volcanic winters associated with this massive magmatic, a volcanic event called the Central Atlantic Magmatic Province that affected a significant percentage of the of the land mass, at least manifested over. Uh, you see evidence of that of those igneous rocks over that kind of area, and associated with their eruption was uh, aerosols and that uh, blocked out sunlight and caused this. Uh, often referred to as volcanic winter. The dinosaurs that were pre-adapted to colder weather, in this case, became even more extremely cold, and they were able to survive through it and then thrive through the ensuing uh, Jurassic and Cretaceous periods. How does it? I mean, how does it advance our understanding of, of dinosaurs in general to know that they, that they had adapted to cold weather and then thrived during it? Well, it, uh, it's sort of like, in, in a way... Uh, from that adaptation uh, mechanism, it was a harbinger of uh, like the uh, of birds, essentially the the uh, the avian members of that of that lineage, and they've uh, they've done very well at the other end of the uh, as we talked about the other end of the um, this period at the end of the cruise where there's another the the uh, perhaps the penultimate mass extinction that. The, these large dinosaurs didn't make it. Maybe uh, there was another, uh, in this case, a impact winter from a large uh, asteroid impact that most likely was the causative agent of that. But they got, one idea is they got, uh, even with their f- uh, feathers, they, they were too big to, uh, to adapt. But these small uh, birds and also the mammals is the ones that got the big break. They they were small enough to burrow or to survive a extended period of of uh, unavailability of food because of the uh, lights out the the impact winter that uh, had to forage presumably on uh, not, nothing growing at the time but stuff that was uh, just laying around and the smaller animals and those that were insulated the ones that were most successful of passing through that so the it's the uh, the lesson, well, you know, fickle finger of fate is what caused these uh, these events that cause large extinctions. And if it's cold, having installation 
and being actually small as they were in the and Triassic before they gained to global prominence um, was a, uh, a key to success for longevity. That's interesting you mentioned that. So they did, I mean, they changed, obviously, once they became a dominant group. Uh, it, it, meant, it meant more and bigger, I would imagine. Yeah, that's a funny thing about that, right? They certainly got larger. We can see that from the fossil record. The footprints almost immediately got large. And uh, I guess biologists have some explanations for this. I think uh, some have seen in many other groups, like like uh, for elephants that live on islands, like in Sicily, in the play, you know, just not that long ago, they they go the other way. They become smaller and sort of more or less like an adaptation to their to their spatial environment. And the odd converse is is that if everything, all the eco spaces, uh, kind of emptied out because of the mass extinction. They um, they can take advantage of it, and one mechanism to take greater advantage is to grow in a larger and size, larger size. A lot of resources, more food available to them, rather than to competitors. So that uh, gave uh, there was a um, gaining gaining size was an adaptive advantage. So those those groups that gain size could command more of the eco space, and the eco space allow that to happen. Yeah, I guess then, in a nutshell, what what have we what have we learned? Um, what has this study told us? Told us that you can have freezing temperatures, even at extraordinarily high CO two. Think about it. Not that uh, not that surprising because. Uh, Whatever the level of CO two, the uh, daylight is limited at, uh, at in polar in polar latitudes, and that uh, adaptation to that kind of environment, if it becomes a uh, an agent of uh, extreme stress, can allow those uh, those organisms to survive that extreme stress. Dennis Ken, a fascinating study. We've we've learned something something new. It's uh, it's very interesting. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me again. As we move forward, the other ideas of change, evolutionary, positive transformation have started, and they began here yesterday. You have asked for change, and you will get it. That is uh, Assembly of First Nations National Chief Roseanne Archibald. Uh, the AFN's annual general meeting is going on in Vancouver this week. Uh, a lot of important issues on the table. Of course, the leadership of National Chief Archibald has been one of the hot topics, the main topics. Um, she was suspended uh, by the AFN uh, back uh, about a month ago. And... Uh, an emergency resolution call an emergency resolution calling for her to be fully reinstated has been delayed till tomorrow. Uh, she's alleged she was attacked for trying to investigate corruption within the assembly and called for a forensic audit of the organization um, for the last eight years she has. Now she easily won a vote on Tuesday on an emergency resolution calling for an affirmation of the suspension over allegations of workplace bullying. So much of the first two days of the annual meeting has been kind of devoted to the conflict between Archibald and the AFN's executive council. And today the AFN's National Youth Council chair said the youth council had been left to fend for itself as executives in the national chief quote squabbled over politics for every chief who has gotten away with capturing the attention of this assembly while our children are once again put aside for the sake of political ambitions that have taken the attention away from the matters which we proclaim to matter most to us and our children 
That was Rosalie Lebilois today, the National Youth Council Chair for the AFN. Joining me now is Nigan James Sinclair. He's a professor in Native Studies at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for your time tonight. Yeah, bonjour. Thanks for having me. Yeah, a fair critique from uh, from the Youth Council Chair, do you think, there today? You certainly heard a lot of frustration in her voice. Well, absolutely. The past six weeks of the AFN has been arguably the most important crisis or biggest crisis in their 40-year existence over a struggle for power between what's called the Executive Council, which is made up mostly of the regional chiefs. Those are uh, leaders selected by the provincial bodies like the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs or the Federated Indigenous Nations of Saskatchewan or something like that. And then the National Chief, which is voted in by the member chiefs in the Assembly, about 630 of them. And where did this stem from? Because I think it, it, for those who pay sort of passing attention to what's going on with the AFN, uh, all of a sudden their national chief, I, we, I think everyone remembered that she was uh, that she was brought in with a lot of fanfare at the time, the first woman in the role. Uh, and then all of a sudden there was a suspension and, and it was hard to figure out exactly what was happening behind the scenes. This all stems into what have been accused as a toxic, toxic workplace and a... Um, a number of financial irregularities coming from the previous national chief, who was named Perry Belgard. Uh, he was from Saskatchewan, and he was uh, head of the assembly for two terms. And uh, the number of questions that have come out as a result of his leadership during the time in office, uh, not just amongst Roseanne Archibald, but also amongst many other chiefs, and what has been accused to be or alleged to be a number of financial uh, issues that have come out of that time period and also staff that are still coming from that time period that are now wanting to leave the assembly with very large severance packages. And so uh, Roseanne Archibald, the new national chief, she voted in about a year ago and she's refused to pay those out, refused to uh, continue some of the contracts that uh, Beck Perry Belgard had agreed to. And that's led to a real dispute between many of the regional chiefs who previously supported uh, former National Chief Belgard, and what's now seen as sort of a new wave or certainly a younger wave uh, starting to take over the AFN. It, it's really become a, a very big uh, issue between some of the old structures within the AFN and then Rosanna Archibald, who's seeking to bring in a number of new structures into the organization. Uh, is it needed? What, what, what Rosanna Archibald is clearly pushing for, is that is that necessary here? And, and how much damage does happens to the organization while this fight is being fought, so to speak? Well, it's hard to say. You know, like the everyday First Nations person doesn't really care about what's happening at the Assembly of First Nations because it's not, it's not a government. It's, it's a lobby right. group that represents chiefs. So that means everyday First Nations people don't really get affected by the decisions made by the Assembly other than to say that they purport to represent all First Nations people and they also deliver programs, really important programs. The AFN does lots of really good work in that direction, doing programs, education programs, uh, advocacy for things like child welfare or murder, missing, indigenous women and girls. And so the AFN is really good as a lobby group, but they're not so good as a uh, advocating for First Nations group because they're really in a tough situation that they can't advocate for individual First Nations who are really the rights holders. They hold their own rights. And so what the AFN is left to do is to sort of advocate nationally on broad scale issues. And so it, all of that has been interrupted due to this political fight. So very difficult to advocate for First Nations issues when what you have is you have regional chiefs who are uh, disputing or fighting with the national chief. And there's competing visions there because they're really two kind of equal forces. The 
the National Executive Council, which runs the administrative uh, wing of the corporate body of the AFN. It's a corporate entity. And then the National Chief, who's trying to institute changes. But it, both groups are speaking on behalf of the, uh, the Assembly. And the fact is that many issues get dropped as a result when they start to fight. Yeah, I mean, we played a clip from the National Youth Council chair coming in, uh, who was in tears today saying that uh, that the squabbling had kind of left the Youth Council to fend for itself. I guess there must be a lot of things, important things on the agenda that uh, that are getting overshadowed by this uh, by this dispute. Well, I mean, clearly there are many crises that the AFN didn't deal with during this assembly. They only meet twice a year, and so. Uh, sometimes a little bit more if there's an emergency meeting of some kind, but but they only meet twice a year. And as a result, they they have to get a lot of work done in a very short amount of time. These are resolutions on what the assembly will put their time and energy into. And so for this meeting, it's been dominated by this political fight. And so there's three major issues that were brought up by the youth today. One is the tremendous challenges that certain First Nations are dealing with when it comes to youth. Of course, the issue of trauma that those youth are dealing with, suicide epidemics and issue, situations such as oil water advisories, and then the larger issue of governance and that the youth were not being listened to, even on the executive council when they said we shouldn't be doing a fight like this, we should be focusing on issues. So, you know, the the AFN is really kind of in a position which is losing its way, particularly losing its, its credibility amongst the youth members. Does Roseanne Archibald survive all this, do you think? Uh, is, is that where it's headed through this week? She's there, at least. I know that was something that was uh, not sure going in. Uh, and she seems to have survived so far in terms of making sure that uh, she was supported, but it still feels like it's pretty divided. Oh, undoubtedly, she'll be around. I mean, the, the vote was very one-sided, supporting the uh, the current national chief and really rebuking, refusing the chain, the, uh, the, the attempts to suspend the national chief by the regional chiefs. I think the regional chiefs came off looking absolutely terrible and, and overly ambitious. In fact, the, the regional chiefs were uh, very petty in the ways in which they sought that to take over this meeting. They banned the national chief from attending. They actually illegitimately suspended her because there's no ability within the AFN charter to suspend the national chief. So the regional chiefs are really overstepping their boundaries and the member chiefs, the 630 of them, voted to support the national chief and that's really left the regional chiefs in a lot of limbo. They don't really represent anything other than their provincial bodies. So they represent regional interests, but they certainly don't represent the AFN at large. And they did act as though they did. So we've got a real problem here in that now we've got a large segment of the AFN, approximately half of its leadership, which is really in doubt now as a result of these actions. And it continues tomorrow. And again, James Sinclair, thanks so much for, uh, for clarifying all this. I appreciate it. Yeah, miigwech. Thanks so much for your time. Well, if you think things were a little bit tense in uh, the Conservative Party today over that uh, Patrick Brown expulsion from the leadership race, you would have wanted to have a look overseas in England. It was a wild day in British politics. So Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, is defying pressure from senior ministers and a mounting rebellion within his party to quit vowing to stay on and fight off attempts to oust him. That's after more than 40 resignations from within the government, many lawmakers in the Conservative Party, in open revolt tonight. Some cabinet ministers even went to Downing Street to tell Johnson he needed to go. One encouraged him to make a dignified exit by setting his own timetable rather than face another confidence vote. There were two high-profile resignations right away, the Health Secretary and the Chancellor of the Exchequer. That prompted a wave again of another 40 ministers, junior ministers, parliamentary aides to follow suit. 
Johnson then fired one of his senior ministers, Housing Secretary Michael Gove, later today, prompting more resignations. Here is former Health Secretary Sajid Javid saying he quit because he could no longer support Johnson's handling of multiple ethics scandals. It's not fair on ministerial colleagues to go out every morning defending lines that don't stand up and don't hold up. It's not fair on my parliamentary colleagues who bear the brunt of constituents' dismay in their inboxes and on their doorsteps in recent elections. And it's not fair on Conservative members and voters who rightly expect better standards from the party they supported. Now, keep in mind, this is a minister in Boris Johnson's, or now former minister, in Boris Johnson's own party, talking about his own leader. Johnson, well, he's not going anywhere, so he says. The job of a prime minister in difficult circumstances when he's been handed a colossal mandate is to keep going. And that's what I'm going to do. I think Boris Johnson would find that the party was handed the mandate, not him, but anyway. Joining me now with more on this is Garrett Martin. He's a senior professorial lecturer at the School of International Service at American University in Washington. Thank you for your time tonight. Quite the day. My pleasure. Never a dull moment in British politics, but this is reading like something out of a out of a political thriller. Uh, how would you qualify the last twenty four hours in the life of the British government and the reign of Boris Johnson? Well, I would say wild, uh, in keeping with with uh, the man in in office in Ten Downing Street, Boris Johnson, quite a wild character himself. Uh, thinking of analogies to the House of Cards, you know, the original uh, British version, uh, right. which really was around leadership contest in the first place. So yes, it's been a pretty dramatic day in British politics for sure. So. We've seen the Chancellor of the Exchequer resign, the Finance Minister, essentially. We've seen the Health Minister resign. We've seen a bunch of other people resign. He fired one of his longtime senior ministers, Michael Gove, today. Uh, what's, how can he stay on? Or how, or how can he possibly remain uh, as head at this point? Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't quote one of my colleagues who quipped that the one time that Boris Johnson is actually a Remainer, you know, looking back to the old Brexit jokes is about his own position in government, which is not surprising. I think on a more serious note, I think the scenarios by which he's able to hold on to power are now non-existent or microscopic. He's essentially lost a, the, the confidence of a major part of the Conservative Party. We knew that already was the confidence vote, which was only a month ago. But now he's also losing confidence from the people closest to him in, in the cabinet. And there's really an arithmetic problem. If an immense majority of your party in office does not support you, there's no way that you can feasibly continue to govern because you need those same people to support you to implement your agenda. So I really do not see a way forward for Boris Johnson staying in office. And yet, because he survived that confidence vote a month ago, according to the rules as they are now, he has the rest of the year, does he not? Uh, I mean, it's, he, it's very tough to get rid of him unless they change the rules, I understand. Correct. But it's speaking to the pressure he's facing and the disaffection he's facing that there are elections for the so-called 1922 committee, which is the committee that governs the backbenchers, that there is open talk about changing the rules. So it's a new uh, leadership challenge against him. So I think that's very telling. And it's pretty clear that if there was a change of rules, if there was a new leadership um, challenge, that he would not survive at this time. So I think Boris Johnson is facing significant challenges. And again, it's hard to see a way forward for him that doesn't end up with him leaving 10 Downing Street. 
For listeners who may have forgotten or may not have known in the first place, where is this all coming from? I mean, there's been, we know about the scandals, the so-called Partygate scandals, whereby there were parties being that he attended uh, during a time when the rest of the country was under a strict lockdown back during the, at the height of the pandemic. Where is this latest wave of resignations and scandals and, 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 and bad words back and forth coming from? You're absolutely right to refer it to back to Partygate because I think that's the core starting point. Uh, the revelations around Partygate that 10 Downing Street was breaching uh, the severe rules around COVID and were doing so repeatedly over a period of over a year. When those revelations uh, came out in late 2021, early 2022, it was a real shock to many in the party as well as members of the public. So Boris Johnson's approval rate really significantly plummeted. He had a little bit of a reprieve in early spring because of the war in Ukraine. But again, Partygate came back uh, with the, the reports by the Metropolitan Police as well by sort of uh, the civil service. So he was already in a position where he was immensely vulnerable, uh, where a number of his party were just looking for the next opportunity, the next moment of vulnerability to challenge him again. And this time it had to do with a senior whip in the Conservative Party, someone who is supposed to enforce the discipline amongst the members um, in the Parliament, it was became apparent that this person had been the subject of a number of complaints of sexual harassment over the years. And it became increasingly clear that Number 10, therefore the government and Boris Johnson, were aware of those allegations when they appointed him senior whip. So again, I think that was just the final nail in the coffin for many it was yet another example of the fact that Boris Johnson could not be trusted. And, and yet, I mean, as, as scandals go, as scandalous as it may be, we've certainly seen worse scandals in politics. Uh, do you get the sense there's more going on behind the scenes here, too, that there is, in fact, a battle for that position uh, to take over Johnson's position as prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party? Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yes, there's, there's always a sort of Shakespearean element here to the Conservative Party. Uh, I would say the other elements to keep in consideration is one of timing, because the next general election could be held as late as late 2024, early 2025. So I think there's a little bit of a reflection, and I may have mentioned this last time, that there is a window of opportunity at which you can remove Boris Johnson. If you wait too long before the next election, then the impact of a change of leadership will be negated. So I think there's a certain element that it needs to be done sooner rather than later, and that the longer Boris Johnson stays in office, the more that he's affecting the re-election prospects of a number of members of, uh, of, of the party. I think there's a calculation. I, I'm going to assume that for some of the front runners, some of the members of the cabinet, like Richie Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, that the longer he stays close to Boris Johnson, the harder it will be to position himself in the leadership um, election, if and when Boris Johnson leaves office. It was Keir Starmer, who's the head of the Labour Party, the official opposition today, uh, quip that uh, said that it's the first time he'd seen the sinking ship deserting the rat. That was the, that was the way he put it today. Um, does Boris Johnson have any support left within his own party that would allow him to serve, to even to stay on in the short term? Yes, I mean, there seems to be a battle inside of the cabinet uh, between you do have some loyalists, uh, you do have some, for a variety of reasons, who are deciding to, to support him. I would say, for instance, uh, Liz Truss, who is a foreign secretary, 
I think part of that is it's down to her own responsibilities and purview where she feels it would be a bad time to have a leadership challenge when we're midst of the war in Ukraine, as well as all of the tensions around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Uh, same for the defense secretary. But, you, you know, beyond that, there's a real arithmetic problem because of all the, the mass resignations we've had today of cabinet members, junior ministers, and even aides to the government, it's not obvious that you're going to be able to find sufficient people to replace them all. Because, you know, to use Kerstama's quip, why would you join a sinking ship? Would it be really in your interest to become associated to kind of the uh, Nero period of uh, Boris Johnson, where, you know, Rome is burning and he's just playing his fiddle? Well, Garrett Martin, we'll leave it at that. I'm sure there's been more resignations at the time we've been talking. Thanks so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Thank you.